I have a confession to make. I tend to be kind of an uh, anxious person. Uh, some would say a worry wart. Is that, is that still, do, the, do we still say that? I'm prone to worry. Here's just a, a sample. As a child, as a child, I worried a lot about my parents. Now, you can talk to them about why I was worrying about them. I can tell you their story. As a teenager, I worried, like most teenagers, about what others thought about me. It was sometimes debilitating. As a young adult, a married man, I worried about how to raise my children in the right way. My daughter, she was pretty easy, compliant. Then came Michael. Okay, enough said there. He did learn to play the bass, though, so I'm doing something right. Then when my kids became became teenagers, there's a whole new set of things to worry about, right? And now as I'm an older adult, I worry about my health. You know, they, the doctors say, now you're 50, have this test and this test. Okay, just don't, you know, the, the letter came in the mail from the doctor after my last test. And, you know, you worry, what's it going to say in there? It was all okay. You worry about Financial security, I mean, you know, I can't keep doing it. My mind is going, in case you hadn't. And so eventually I can't do this anymore. I worry about you people, you know, uh, the, the congregation, the church. How are you doing? Can you, anyone relate to, to being a worrier? Oh, thanks, Dan. Brother Dan. Well, I have some good news for you this morning. In our passage for today, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, will help us deal with our anxiety, deal with our our worries. He'll encourage and instruct us away from anxiety and towards experiencing joy and peace in the Lord. So let's turn to our passage for today in your Bibles, if you have Bibles, which is a good thing to bring to church Bibles. Uh, We're in the book of Philippians This is week 10 in our study of the book of Philippians. We're in chapter 4, the final chapter, and we'll be looking at verses 2 through 9. If you're in a home fellowship group and you have one of those those home group books, it's chapter 10 in the book goes from verse 2 to verse 23, but we're cutting that in half. So in your home group, you only have to do half of your study this week. Woohoo! Yay. Less homework. Let me, let me review before we get to chapter, uh, chapter 4. In chapters 1 through 3, we've seen some, I think, some really powerful instruction uh, from the Lord, from uh, the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi, and it applies to us as well. In chapters 1 and 2, Paul called them, he calls us, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. To, and we saw what that meant. It means to live in unity to live in humility towards one another, standing firm together, striving, as, as the NIV puts it, as one man, fighting together for the gospel. So, so, that, so that the way you live, what you do, your actions, and the words you speak serve to make Christ known in your world. And in chapter 3, Paul makes it clear that our goal in life, our number one priority should be to pursue relationship with Jesus Christ. To know Christ, he says. As I said before, I think we can summarize the first three chapters of the book of Philippians this way. To know him and to make him known. Now Paul, Paul talks about making him known and then knowing him, but that's okay. I like the, how it sounds better. To know him and to make him known. 
That's a powerful summary of really what the Christian life is to be about. Getting to know your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and making him known to those around you. But as anyone who's set out to live this kind of life, this kind of life of knowing him and making him known, we know it's not always smooth sailing. There's rough patches. We have to contend with enemies, those who don't want us to know him, those who don't want us to make him known. We've talked about those enemies in the past. We summarize them with Uh, as the Bible summarizes in the world, the distractions of this world, the flesh, our own sinful desires, and the devil. He's real. They conspire to keep us from the life that God has for us. They, our enemies, want us to be wrapped up in the issues of this world, of the earth, our problems, our worries, and we they want us to forget about knowing him and making him known. That's true today, and that was true over 2,000 years ago in the church in Philippi. Remember that church in Philippi was a, a good, solid church. It was, uh, it was maybe the best church of Paul's churches he had planted. They didn't have any major doctrinal issues. They weren't struggling in that way. The people were, in fact, Paul's greatest supporters. They were his greatest teammates in advancing the gospel. And it's clear that Paul loved them very much. He cared deeply for them, and he wanted them to experience all that God had for them. But like any church, except for bridges, no, just kidding. Like any church, the church in Philippi wasn't perfect. And so Paul, nearing the end of his letter, takes this opportunity to address an issue, a specific issue. He's going to get personal. Now, this issue was certainly not the only problem that the Philippian church had. I think Paul points this out as as just one example of what was probably happening in the lives of others in Philippi. This problem and others like it were keeping the believers in Philippi from experiencing the joy and the peace of the Lord. It was preventing them from living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, of knowing Him and making Him known. So, So let's walk through not only the problem that Paul presents in the first couple verses, but more importantly, the solution that Paul provides. Verse 2, chapter 4. I entreat Euodia and entreat Syneche to agree in the Lord. So there's a problem. We don't have a lot of information, but it's clear that Euodia and Syneche were having a, a disagreement. They're not at peace with one another. There's a problem. And Paul entreats them, and he says, agree in the Lord. Now, Now, from their names, we know two things about these people. We know that they were women. They're female names. And that's not to say all the problems in the church are because of women. I'm not saying that. I don't believe it. There are other places in Scripture where Peter and Paul have disagreements. Paul and Barnabas, men have disagreements too. This just happens to be two women. And we know they're uh, Greek women. They're from Greek backgrounds. These aren't Jewish women. The name Euodia in Greek means fragrant or successful. The name Syntyche means fate or being lucky. These two women had probably grown up in Philippi. They were raised in the Greek, in the pagan culture. But they both, at some point, maybe on Paul's first visit, remember Paul went down to the riverside in, outside of Philippi and he met a, a woman named Lydia, the first convert, and there were others there. Maybe they were among them. 
the first women converts in Philippi. They had become believers in Jesus Christ. And yes, even in the, the great church of Philippi, there were believers who had disagreements. Believers who were not at peace with one another. Now notice that Paul doesn't take sides. This means, I think, that their disagreement wasn't over some doctrinal matter. They weren't, wasn't theological in nature. Because Paul is, is usually quick to point out when there's a, a, a problem, when people are straying away from the true gospel. So the disagreement was probably personal in nature. Don't know what it was. Again, we don't know what they're disagreeing about, but we do know that Paul entreats them to agree in the Lord. That word entreat means to beseech, to exhort, to pray. I pray that you will agree in the Lord. Paul, from the depths of his heart, wants them to come back together in the Lord. He wants them to set aside their differences and come to an agreement based on their mutual relationship with the Lord. He wants them to experience peace with the Lord and peace with one another. He continues in verse 3. He says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Paul recognizes that these women might not be able to make uh, peace on their own. It's often true in our lives. We just can't seem to do it. So he asks for someone he calls true companion to help. We don't know who this true companion is, but he or she was probably well known in the church in Philadelphia. It might, it, it might even be a name, uh, this true companion. Someone might have taken that as their, their name, so it might have been clear who he's talking about. I think he or she is probably, probably have a reputation of being a, a peacemaker among the believers. And Paul wants this true companion to step in and to help these women to make peace, to agree in the Lord. And why is Paul so motivated to see these women get help? Well, he cares about them. They're people, they're believers in Christ, but there's, there's some, some special things about them. He goes on in verse 3 to describe who, he's talking about these women, who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. When Paul was in Philippi, Euodia and Syntyche had labored with him. They were part of his team. They, along with Clement and others, stood firm. They strived together. They probably sacrificed, maybe even suffered for the gospel of Jesus Christ. These women were part of a group that called, Paul called his fellow workers. And their names are in the book of life. They are true believers. They've trusted in Jesus Christ. Jesus is their Lord and Savior. So, Euodia and Syntyche are true believers in Christ. And they're involved in, they've been involved in advancing the gospel. They knew him, and they were making him known. And yet they have some kind of problem, some kind of disagreement with one another. Uh, They're not at peace. This should be a warning to us, right? Even true believers in, in Christ, even those who are in ministry, even those who are seeking to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, even those who know him and are making him known, can have disagreements, problems, issues. I'd be embarrassed uh, to tell you of some of the disagreements I've had with other believers. When I was a, a missionary, uh, you guys, we have wrong ideas about missionaries, just so you know. Not perfect people. I had a number of disagreements with my co-workers, my colleagues, not over doctrine, but over how we would do ministry. And I'm ashamed to say that some of these disagreements did not end well. Uh, we didn't 
we didn't have a, a true companion, a peacemaker to help us. We were unwilling to uh, agree in the Lord. And you know what the result was? The work of the gospel suffered. Do you remember the, the two key components for living in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ we talked about a couple weeks ago? They are unity and humility. For the gospel to go forth in Philippi, Euodia and Syntyche need to agree in the Lord. They need to come together. They needed to be united and in humility set aside their differences for the sake of the Lord, for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They needed to make peace with one another. And we have to do the same. When we're personally involved in a disagreement with another brother or sister in Christ, we have to seek to agree in the Lord, to value unity above our own personal issues, to come together in humility, to be reconciled in Christ Jesus. And when we see other believers in having a disagreement, if we know about it, we have to become these true companions. We have to come alongside and help mediate, help come together in the Lord. We need to be peacemakers. So Paul's pointed out a specific problem in the church in Philippi. And he begins to provide a a solution, a peaceful solution. He tells them to agree in the Lord, and he calls for a peacemaker to enter into that situation for help. But there's more. There's more in in the attitude they need to have. There's more in the things they need to pursue that we need to pursue. With the understanding that even in a good, solid church, even among good, solid, hard-working, gospel-proclaiming believers, even among those who are seeking to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, even those who are seeking to know Him and to make Him known, there can be disunity and strife, disagreements. Paul goes on in the next six verses to exhort. This is an exhortation. Uh, This is calling you to act in a certain way and to instruct the believers how they can guard themselves from disunity, from disagreements, from strife, and, and much more. Paul, in these next several verses, gives directions on how to maintain, really, a proper perspective in the Lord. How to live in a world full of imperfect people, full of difficult circumstances. So it goes beyond just the the, the issues in the church, it really stretches to how you view your, your life, the circumstances of your life, how to live with joy and peace in a world full of issues and problems and difficulty. He begins, Chad's mentioned it, he begins in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. This is one of the most famous verses in the Philippians, maybe the Bible. Paul commands, and it's a commandment, the Philippians and all believers, this applies to us, to rejoice in the Lord. He says it twice for emphasis. Again, I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Always. Not sometimes. Not when life is going great. But always. No matter what you're experiencing, whether persecution, I mean, so this is this letter is talked about. Paul's in prison. He's being he's been persecuted. He's talking about sorrows, illness. We've talked about illness. Remember, Epaphroditus had this illness, strife in the church. No matter what your life circumstances are, Paul says, "Rejoice 
in the Lord. And just to be clear, sometimes we want to define rejoice so that we can do it, so that it's possible in our humanness to do rejoicing. Rejoicing actually means to be cheerful and happy. It's actually an experience of the heart. Now, how is that possible? How can I rejoice? How can he command me to rejoice, to be cheerful and happy, even when I can find no joy in my circumstances? Well, the key is that you're not rejoicing in your circumstances. You're rejoicing in the Lord. And there's always, always reason to rejoice in the Lord. And therefore, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. It's, it's God. It's, it's Jesus Christ. Not our circumstances that we need to keep our eyes on, that we need to focus on. Paul's saying, when you're experiencing the pain of this world, when you're experiencing disunity and strife, when you're experiencing persecution, turn to the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Not in the pain, but in Him. The world will throw all kinds of pardon me crap at you, your way. But you need to focus on Jesus, who is, who he, focus on who he is, focus on what he's done for you. And it doesn't mean, just so we're clear, it doesn't mean we ignore all our external circumstances, all the difficulties of this life. We don't go around with a stupid grin on our face. In 2 Corinthians 6, uh, chapter 6, verse 10, Paul writes this amazing uh, Christian paradox. This is, I think, uniquely Christian. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. It's a paradox. At sorrowful, it's, they're together in the same place. Aren't those mutually exclusive? As believers, we're not immune to sorrows, to pain, to suffering in this life. But we can at the same time be that we're sorrowful, be rejoicing. So how does that work? How does that work? How is that possible? Well, well, in my life, and I'm going to just talk about how, how it works for me for a second. There are circumstances in my life that cause me uh, great sorrow. Either my own problems or the problems of someone who's, who's close to me. Just, just recently, I've been overwhelmed in some respects with sorrow because of a situation in my family. The sorrow and the pain and the tears are quite real. But there was and there is something else that's just as, if not more real. And that's the presence of the Lord in my life. Knowing that even in difficult circumstances, The Lord is in control. The Lord is sovereign. The Lord knows what's going on. Trusting that He will work all things together, even the difficult things, especially the difficult things for His good, for your good. Believing that no matter what happens, no matter what happens, I'm a child of God. He cares for me. He loves me. Having faith that Jesus Christ died in my place for my sins, that I might have a relationship with God. Trusting that this life is very temporal, is very short compared to eternity. That I'm a citizen, not of this world that's filled with sorrow and pain, but of heaven. I'm a citizen of heaven where where my tears will be wiped away. And I could go on. The focus on the Lord in the difficult circumstances 
of life. It's, it's about, it has a lot to do with how you think, what you think about. And we're going to come to that in a minute. Even in times of sorrow, if we can focus on the Lord, who He is, what He has done, what He will do in our lives, if we look to Jesus, if we turn our eyes to Jesus, then even as tears roll down our faces, a smile can come to our lips. We can have joy that's inexplicable to the world. For those who who do not know Christ in their sorrow, all they have is sorrow. They have no place to turn. But we can turn to the Lord and we can rejoice in Him. So rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Paul continues, verse 5. Rejoice and let your reasonables, excuse me, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. I think this is specifically addressing the problem of disunity and disagreement that, that, that the church is facing. That English word reasonable, reasonableness, which I can't say, apparently, is the Greek word, so now I can't say the English word, so I'm going to try the Greek word, genius that I am, ep, epikes, epikes, epikeus. That's better. Okay, that's it. Reasonable is the Greek word. We don't need to talk about the Greek word. It's difficult to translate. That's my point. It's difficult for me to say, and it's difficult to translate. The NIV translates it gentleness. The NASB, gentle spirit. The King James, moderation. And the RSV, forbearance. The ESV, what we're looking at, reasonableness. So each, each version of the Bible uses a different word for it. It's clear that no single English word truly grabs the essence of what this means. That w- it, the word involves a willingness to set aside your own personal rights and show consideration, gentleness, humility to others. It takes us back to Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Remember? Uh, Paul writes, do nothing from selfishness or conceit, but in humility count others better than yourselves. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Let your reasonableness, your gentleness, your humility be seen. It may be easy to be reasonable toward some people, but Paul commands that we be reasonable and gentle with everyone. That would include uh, Christian friends, unsaved persecutors, false teachers, anyone at all. You can hear Paul saying, Euodia and Syntyche, rejoice in the Lord and and let your reasonableness be known to to one another. Now just to be clear, Paul isn't saying that, that you just give in on every occasion, on every issue. Truth is never to be sacrificed. What he's saying is to deal with people in gentleness and in care, and consideration. We should, as Jesus said, speak the truth in love. Then Paul adds, the Lord is at hand. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. I don't know for sure, but I detect a a little bit of a tone in Paul's words. I wish I could get Paul's original audio version of Philippians. That would be great. I think we could hear a, a little bit of a tone. He's saying, Look, look, be reasonable with everyone. This life, your personal rights, they just aren't that big a deal. They're not that important. The Lord is at hand. Goofball? I don't know if he said that. The Lord is coming. The kingdom of heaven 
is what really matters. Don't bicker about silly earthly things, things that are going to pass away. Have the right perspective so when the Lord returns, you're not embarrassed by your unreasonableness. He continues in verse 6, where he hits, hits that, that anxiety head on. Anxiety is probably the reason for not rejoicing in the Lord and not being reasonable. You're, you're anxious. You think you have to do something else. And he says, do not be anxious about anything. Another blanket statement. Paul's very blank. You know, be reasonable to everyone. Don't be anxious about anything. I know, he says, this world is pain, filled with pain and sorrow and difficulty and hard stuff. But you, uh, believer, you, Christian, do not need to be anxious about anything. Yes, anything. You don't need to worry. You need to rejoice in the Lord. You need to be reasonable, gentle, humble with everyone. You need to not worry about whether your personal earthly rights are being violated. And instead of being anxious about anything, Paul in verse 6 continues and he provides the solution to worry and anxiety. Here it is. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Is there a problem in your life that's causing you to worry? Well, you have something, you have something, I pray you have something that the world doesn't have. Uh, the world can only turn to themselves. Maybe they have a good friend that could give them some advice. That's as far as it goes. But you have something great. And you need to use it every time in everything. You need to take your difficult, your anxiety-filled, worry-filled circumstances to the Lord. Paul's not saying to forget your circumstances or to not deal with them. Oh, if I, if I just forget about them, if I don't think about them, they'll go away. He's saying, don't worry about them. Because you can take them to the sovereign Lord of the universe. You can put them at the feet of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The answer to anxiety is bringing the circumstance that's causing you anxiety and worry to the Lord in prayer. And Paul lists several kinds of prayer. The word prayer in the Greek, points to having an, just an attitude of worshipful, worshipfulness, coming to the Lord in worship. Don't be anxious before an all-powerful... All, how can you be anxious if you're a child of God? He says, he's worthy of your worship. The word supplication means to express your needs to God. Don't be anxious. Instead, tell God your problems, your issues, your needs. The word thanksgiving means to thank God for what he has and will do in your life. Don't be anxious. Instead, thank God for what he has done. This is a a reflector on the past. Remember what God has done, how he's got you uh, through in the past. Thank him for that. And thank him in faith for how he's going to deal with this particular circumstance in your life. And finally, the word request refers to the things you ask God for. Don't be anxious Instead, ask God for His solution and receive it with thankfulness. To summarize, don't be anxious. Instead, fall on your knees before an almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing God and give it to Him. So so Paul has said to rejoice in the Lord always. He said, uh, be reasonable to everyone. And 
and take and in prayer take your anxiety to the Lord. And if you do those things, then there's a promise for you. This is a, one of those conditional promises. You don't get it just because. There are some unconditional promises in, in the Bible. This isn't one of them. You have to be rejoicing. You have to be, be, be being reasonable. And you have to take uh, your difficult circumstances to the Lord in prayer. And he says, And the peace of God, verse 7, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God. Just take a little sigh. So what's the peace of God? I think it's maybe more, but at least two things. First of all, it's peace with God. Before you come to Christ, uh, I hate to... I mean, break your bubble if you haven't come to Christ yet. You are an enemy of the living God, and that's not a good place to be. Uh, Romans, Paul writes, in that while we were enemies, Christ died for us. Before we come to Christ, we are at war with God. We're in rebellion to the creator of the universe. But when we come to Christ, there's peace. Jesus Christ is the peacemaker between God and man. When you trust in Christ, You move from being an enemy, you move to being a friend, a a child of God. Now that's the peace that every believer receives. It's a cessation, a stoppage of hostilities between you and God. You're no longer up against God. You're on his team. Peace with God through Jesus Christ. And then there's more peace that comes with that. There's peace that comes from having this growing, continual relationship with the Lord. Knowing Christ more brings peace. A relationship of rejoicing in the Lord. A relationship of being reasonable, having a good perspective on yourself and others. And a relationship of of prayer, of coming to the Lord with any issues in your life, with all things And that peace refers to, that kind of peace that comes from this relationship with the Lord refers to this inner feeling of tranquility, of rest, of quietness, of of a lack of fear. Your heart is at rest in the Lord. There's an internal assurance uh, that the Lord's presence is in your life. As A.T. Pearson said, the peace of God is that internal calm which lies far too deep in the praying, trusting soul to be reached by any external disturbances. You've got the peace of God. It's kind of like armor against the things of this world. God's giving you his peace, and things are trying to crush you, but, but the peace is holding you up. Jesus talks about this kind of peace. In John chapter 14, he's been speaking about the Holy Spirit The gift of the Spirit that comes into our lives when we trust in Christ. And in verse 27 he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Peace from the Lord takes away fear and trouble. The peace of God is not of this world. It's not just a a cessation to external hostilities. It's an internal presence of God's Spirit in our lives. It brings us rest, and it brings us comfort and joy. It takes away our anxiety and our fear. And it's beyond human understanding. 
and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. The peace of God, apart from the Spirit of God, just can't be explained. It can't be understood by man. How can someone without the Spirit of God understand Paul's sense of peace while he's in prison, when he, while he doesn't know if he's going to live or die? How can someone without the Spirit of God understand Charlie? Charlie's not here today. I don't know if he's feeling well. Charlie's sense of peace, and I was spent time with Charlie when he got his diagnosis of cancer. There was a peace in that man's face. How can the world understand that? How can someone without the Spirit of God understand uh, Amy and David and Debbie Alexander's peace when Amy went to Afghanistan? Talk to David about that. There was peace there. Talk to Amy about that. There was peace going to this most difficult place in our world can't be explained. How, how can someone without the Spirit of God understand the words of Horatio Spafford? Maybe you know Horatio. When his two daughters were killed, when their ship sank in the Atlantic Ocean, and he later, on a, on a, coming across on a different ship, as he neared the place where his daughters had died, he wrote, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, It is well, it is well with my soul. We're going to sing that in a minute. That's peace that surpasses all understanding. It's the peace of God. And it will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's available to you today in Christ Jesus. For those who are in Christ, what an amazing promise. Those who rejoice in the Lord. They have a, the right focus. They're, they're, they, they're rejoicing in the, 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 the living God who are reasonable with everyone. They, they don't, they're not so worried about themselves. They, they have humility. They care for others. Who take their anxieties to the Lord in prayer. The peace of God will guard your hearts. It will guard your emotions and your mind, your thinking from the attacks and the circumstances of this world. What a great promise. What a great promise. But we have to do the work. We have to do the work. We have to rejoice. We have to be reasonable. We have to pray. Take our difficulties to the Lord. And Paul adds, if you want to experience this peace of God in your life, he says in verse 8, finally, brothers, so he's adding on to this, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. This verse highlights just how important our thought life is, how important what we think about is. It matters to God, just how important it is to keep your mind in the right place, keep your mind focused on the Lord. We don't have time... Uh, the time we need to look at each one of these uh, things. Paul gives us a whole list. He's, you know, that's a whole series of sermons right there. As believers, this is what we should think about, though. Whatever is true, run from false ideas and, and think about what is true. Whatever is honorable, whatever is honest and in, has integrity, whatever is just, whatever is right and righteous, whatever is pure, and it's speaking of moral purity, whatever is holy to God, Whatever is lovely, this has to do with what is pleasing and agreeable. Whatever is commendable, whatever, whatever has positive attributes, it's attractive. Then Paul says, if anything is excellent and praiseworthy, 
in your life, if you see anything that's excellent, it's good, it's well done and praiseworthy, worthy to point out to others, to say, look at this, this is awesome, then think about these things. Now, I don't know what you think about when you think about these things. I don't know what comes to your mind. There are a number of things, and I think Paul is talking about meditating, about uh, just all kinds of things that are true and honorable and just and pure, and the list goes on. But there's one thing, or should I say one person, who qualifies in every category. And that person is Jesus Christ. And so, to summarize, let me summarize Philippians 3.8 this way. I would say, think about Jesus. Take time every day, throughout your day, to think about who Jesus is. To think about what he's done for you. Read the word of God that describes his life over and over again. Let it permeate your your thinking, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, what he promises to do in your life, that he's coming again to receive you unto himself. Spend time in prayer meditating on Jesus because Jesus is the most true and honorable and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and praiseworthy thing or person we can think about. And when we spend time thinking about Jesus instead of ourself, our negative circumstances, then your anxiety and your fear and your worry are replaced by the peace of God. But it's more than just thinking. Paul says in verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Paul had been their teacher and example in, in two ways. First, what they had learned and received. It's speaking, that's speaking of uh, what he's communicated to them. His words. He's taught them. He's taught them the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's, he's taught them true Christian doctrine. How to live in Christ. So first, they were to practice the things that Paul taught them. And second, what they heard and saw in him. Referring to follow, uh, the following his actions. What he said and what he did. Follow that. What what they heard him did, heard him do, heard he did, and saw him do. They saw him obey the Lord. They saw him proclaim the gospel. They saw him take risks for Jesus Christ. So, second, they were to practice the things that they heard and saw Paul do. We've talked about Paul uh, already being an example, but I want us to realize that in the early days of the church. Uh, before the New Testament was fully written or put together, what it meant to be a Christian, how you understood being a Christian, was largely, largely came from uh, the letters of the apostles and seeing the apostles, the lives of the apostles, those that Jesus had set apart as apostles, including Paul on the road to Damascus. In many ways, the apostles were the New Testament in the early church. Now, for us, we don't have the apostles with us, these apostles. But we do have their writings. We do have the New Testament. So for us, I think the command may be a little different, if I can take this liberty. What you've learned from the Word of God, from reading about the lives of believers, the apostles and others in the New Testament, practice these things. What you've learned from Jesus Christ, practice those things. So the command might be different for us. The focus is on the Word of God instead of the living apostles for the early church. 
The promise is the same. If you'll do that, again, conditional, conditional, if you'll uh, practice these things, the God of peace will be with you. Now, God's going to be with you, but you might miss out on his peace if you're not doing what he says. Those who followed Paul's living example in the church in Philippi and those who follow his guidance in the word, both are promised that the God of peace will be with you. If you follow the word of God, then God will be with you and God will provide his peace for you. He, he is the God of peace. So when he's with you, there'll be peace between you and God. There'll be peace between you and your fellow believers. And there'll be a sense of rest and tranquility in a world filled with uh, pain and suffering. That's the peace that God's presence in your life will provide. And you can experience that peace today. You can come to, if you haven't, if you're still an enemy of the cross of Christ, of the Lord, you can come to him. You can submit to him. You can give your life to him. You can begin to rejoice in the Lord always. You can begin to be a reasonable person. You can begin to take your anxieties and fears to the Lord. When I rejoice in the Lord, when I'm humble and gentle and reasonable with everyone, when I, in faith, take everything, including my uh, anxiety to the Lord, when I think about all things good, especially Jesus Christ, and when I follow the teachings and examples of the New Testament, and then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guards, it's, it's there guarding my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus. The world can come at me with all kinds of stuff, but the peace of God is, is, is there standing as a guard against me getting uh, destroyed. And it's my prayer that you, that we, even in the midst of sometimes uh, terrible life circumstances, difficulties, will be able to experience the peace of God in our lives. That we might, not, not just so we can go float around in clouds and be, ooh, peace, neat. But that we might be a church filled with the peace of God, knowing the peace of God, and then a church that takes that peace of God that He's given us and offers it to the world. Making God's peace known. We know the peace of God. Now we're to be about making God's peace known to others. We have to care about those around us who are living in turmoil. We have the solution in Christ Jesus. So would you pray with me uh, to that end for us as a church? Lord God, I pray that we would be a people that would experience your peace. We would be a people who rejoiced in you and everything about you. Lord, that we would be a people, maybe this is the hard one, that were reasonable to one another, reasonable to everyone, Lord, and that that we would be a people who would take our anxieties and fears and frustrations and difficult life circumstances to you, that you might give us peace. And Lord, as we experience your peace that we can't, couldn't help but taking it into our world, offering it to those we see every day in, in our neighborhoods, in our jobs, who are struggling just to, just to keep their heads above water in this difficult world. Lord, help us to be people who who know you, know your peace, and make it known to those around us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.